this week on the Backtable Podcast. I went in kicking and screaming, thinking, no way, there's no way I'm going to be successful at this. There's no way that I'm going to be able to do this. How am I going to manage my clinical workload with, you know, being a, a leader in SIR? And what in fact happened is I got to sit in a room with the best and the brightest and the smartest and the most talented individuals in our specialty. And, you know, that dovetailed into me being on the SIO board of directors. And boy, I mean, just to be able to sit in a room with international leaders and just see how they think and see how they lead on a personal level, you know, you gain more from that than I think you ever could at your local institution. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. Uh, you can find all previous episodes of our podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. First, a brief message from our sponsor. For more than 70 years, Varian has been at the forefront of the fight against cancer, enabling advances in oncology in the quest for better patient outcomes. Now with Varian and Seaman Health and Years as one, they're raising the standard in interventional patient care. Their solutions enable more precision and efficiency, and their commitment to funding research helps build the scientific data necessary to drive the adoption of minimally invasive image-guided procedures. Now, back to the episode. My name is Sean Tutton as your guest host this week, and I'm very excited to introduce uh, longtime friends and colleagues, special guests, Drs. Bill Rilling and Sarah White. Welcome, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Sean. Today's podcast is going to center around the history of the SIO, the Society of Interventional Oncology. I'm just going to jump right into this, Bill. What was the genesis of the SIO? Sort of how did this all evolve and who are the key players? You know, who was in the room? Maybe you can just kind of give us a little historical. Sure. Yeah. Thanks, Sean. So the SIO evolved from the WCIO, the World Conference of Interventional Oncology, and the first meeting, I guess, really of the WCIO was in 2005 in London. Um, and every year after that, the, the meeting moved around and um, we had a, a board structure, an executive committee for the WCIO and, you know, a meeting committee and things. And as that was maturing and as the field was maturing, we started to talk a lot more about the needs in the field of interventional oncology to kind of achieve, you know, our goals, which the main one is really to become the fourth pillar of, of oncology, along with surgical oncology, medical oncology, and radiation oncology. And so we started to expand out from having just an annual meeting uh, and having more year-round education. We started to talk a lot more about research and where, where there were unmet needs in, in research in IO. How do we start to develop research infrastructure in IO? How do we start running trials that are critical strategically for our field? You know, where do we get resources for all that? And um, as we were starting to have those discussions, it was a natural thing to start talking about. Do we need to have or should we form a membership society? The WCIO was not a membership society. It was a community of people that were interested in IO. But the discussion of forming a membership society um, solely focused on interventional oncology was one that was ongoing for at least two or three years um, because we knew that that was a very, very much a watershed moment and that was uh, something that was politically charged. We knew that it was going to be controversial. We knew that there were some people who would feel that that was unnecessary and then it was going to splinter IR into sub-factions that would, you know, compete and things like that. And so 
there was a lot of discussion for a long period of time. And I think it's really important that people, I hope uh, that people can understand that it was taken extremely seriously by the people on the room that were discussing that, knowing that it had significant implications. And at the end of the day, I think everybody who was there really, you know, we asked ourselves the question, will interventional oncology be better off in five or 10 or 15 years if we form a subspecialty society? Or do we just kind of keep doing what we're doing? And, and, you know, at the end of the day, after a lot of discussion, the answer to that was it would be better, we thought. And it really wasn't an ego trip at all. And I can tell you just personally, having been part of all those discussions, it was a very, very thoughtful dialogue over a couple of years uh, before we actually made the vote to even call the vote uh, to do it. And the people who were in the room, uh, you asked, Sean, were all people that you know very well. Uh, Ricardo Lencioni, Jeff Geshwin, Riyadh Salem, Steve Salomon, Afshin Ganji, Alban Denis, Kevin Kim, and myself. And uh, so not a lot of uh, gender diversity there. Sorry, Sarah, but um, yeah, we're working on that. But uh, but it was, I just, I want to emphasize that there, it was a very serious and thoughtful process on our end, I think, before we actually made that leap. And I, I think we've been able to accomplish some really good things, but it was a tough process at first. Appreciate that. That was a really nice overview of kind of how it all evolved. Why do you think that it's so important for interventional oncology to have its own society? Like what's different about SIO now versus WCIO? I mean, you've touched on it, the education, the research, but uh, for those of us that really think of ourselves as interventional oncologists, I think it'd be really good to hear, you know, your thoughts on like, what's the difference between a meeting and a society, right? I mean, these are things that until you actually verbalize them, say it out loud, like what goes into forming a society uh, and why is this so important to interventional oncologists? Well, that's a tough question and obviously very complicated. I, Sean, I think at the end of the day, when you form a society, you're asking people to become members and invest their time and their money in the society. And, and so the people who are doing that expect some return on investment for what they're giving both time and, and effort and money. So I think, you know, that's way different than when you go to a meeting, right? So when you go to a meeting, you, you're going to pay your tuition and, um, you're going to go there and, and go to the sessions you want. And when the meeting's over, you pretty much go home and get your CME and you're good. I think investing in the society is, is a different level. We're asking people who feel passionate about interventional oncology to invest and having people who identify with this as sort of an area of need where we need to push the field forward is, um, is critical, you know, and, and it's quite frankly, I think it's just part of the natural evolution of interventional radiology. And, you know, I, I understand the concern of not having 10 different subspecialty societies under the umbrella of interventional radiology. Um, and I don't think, you know, at the end of the day that that would be constructive, but there's other subspecialty groups within IR that certainly are very sophisticated, do great research, great work. And, you know, I don't think it would be surprising at all if two, three, five years from now, there are other groups that focus on venous disease or women's health, or, I mean, those, those service lines already exist within our society within SIR, but the ability to focus resources and effort completely on the thing that you're passionate about is really what having SIO, I think, allows. 
Yeah, agreed. I mean, I, I actually had to explain this to one of our industry sponsors uh, one day because there was confusion over another meeting versus SIO as a society. And we talked a little bit about, you know, the NCCN guidelines and how important it is for us to be involved and engaged in writing letters, which is something that SAO does to try to get interventionalists on the panels and to make sure that our therapies are right there alongside the other pillars of surgical oncology, medical oncology, and radiation oncology, um, lobbying efforts, right? I mean, these are all the things that I think transcend a meeting and a group of people that are just very passionate about a space. You know, the society has evolved to a point where we're actually, even though we're a small society, we're, we have an outsized voice, you know, very similar to SIR, right? SIR is also a relatively small society up against ACR, but it has a, a relatively outsized voice because of engagement, volunteerism. If I could interrupt for one second, I'd just also like to make the point that I think I were certainly don't advocate that people support either SIO or SIR. You know, I am an SIR member. I've spent a lot of time on SIR activities and, and the board and things. And SIR has, has done amazing things for the broad specialty. And so has Cersei. Uh, and both those umbrella organizations are extremely important to our, our specialty. And I think what SIO is doing is obviously more focused and it's different. And we're working hard to make sure that we're not, not working across purposes and that we're not duplicating efforts. But I would, you know, urge, we urge people certainly to be members of both. It's needed to have people that are involved in both organizations, which we have in a purposeful way at this point in time. Um, you know, all, all the leadership of SIO is involved in SIR as well. But I think there are certain things that SIR does really well as a much bigger society that SIO will never try to do because we just don't, we don't need to do that. SIR is doing a great job. Like we don't have to start a CPT process. We don't have to, you know, go to the ruck um, and that kind of thing, because we're very well represented by the SIR infrastructure for some of those things. So I think we hope that people see the value of being members of both. So, you know, both you are, uh, you and Sarah are board members on the SIO. Sarah, what, maybe just give us your perspective on this. Uh, you have a uh, significant focus in research and interventional oncology research, you know, how do you see SIO fulfilling that role specifically and, and its mission? Well, I think our North Star in interventional oncology is, as Bill said, to become a fourth pillar of cancer care. So we want to stand alongside surgical oncology, radiation oncology, medical oncology, as Bill said. So how do we do that? Well, we need the data to support our claims that we are good, we can do things, but we actually need data to, to prove it. So how do we do that? That's through research. So SIO has been very, very nimble and has been able to raise upwards of $8 million. We have started the Acclaim trial, which is going to be a society-run trial, which is really exciting, I think. Many societies, even bigger than SIR, aren't capable um, of doing that just because of the infrastructure that would require. And a new society has that nimble ability to do things and recreate who we are. And so I think, you know, that's the beauty of having a, a small society is that we can just sort of move with the tides and do have this, you know, the skill set to raise money and run clinical trials. Totally agree. I mean, I think back to what Bill said that the difference here is just focus, right? I think this society is wholly focused on interventional oncology. 
interventional oncology trials and research and is complementary to SIR, which is much more of a broad, overarching society for our specialty. Being able to pull off the acclaim trial and uh, being able to raise $8 million in research for a relatively young society is, is actually quite an achievement. Because, Sean, I would say the North Star for SIR, in my mind, is getting patients access to IR care, right? So they're fighting every day, day in and day out, so that patients can see an interventional radiologist. In SIO, the North Star is becoming the fourth pillar of interventional cancer care, right? So you have a different North Star. So that's why we're complementary, because interventional oncology, we're fighting to be a, a cancer doctor, standing side by side with everybody else. And SIR is really fighting to make sure that patients get access to IR. And any capacity. We touched on acclaim a little bit. I'm not sure that everybody out there listening knows exactly what acclaim is, its importance. And so, Bill, maybe uh, maybe explain for the next couple of minutes, what's acclaim, why does it matter? And then, Sarah, maybe give your perspective as well. Yeah, thanks, Sean. I think um, this is a very important trial, and it's a trial, honestly, that should have been done many years ago. There's there's really a, a severe lack of prospective data in, in the field of ablation in general. But one of the new and exciting things in ablation now is the ability to use software to determine margins after we do the ablation. And so what the claim is a international multi-center phase two trial that will look at the results of percutaneous microwave ablation for colorectal METs and what happens if we can prove that we get a, are getting a 360 degree five millimeter margin with margin confirmation software that will also have a core lab that will be adjudicating the results that are done at the individual sites. Um, so what we believe based on, you know, sort of preliminary data and much of the work that Costi Sophocleus has done as the international PI, that if we can get five millimeter, 360 degree margin, that will be equivalent to surgical resection. This should really move the needle uh, when it comes to NCCN guidelines and for making decisions for our patients. Sarah, your thoughts on this? So I can tell you, I was recently at a meeting and Riyadh and I were, were standing side by side and debating about ablation versus radiation segmentectomy. And the surgeon stood up in the room, the surgical oncologist, and he said, you have no data, you have no prospective randomized control trials looking at ablation or radiation segmentectomy. And so we both sat there, looked at each other, and then Riyadh, in his wonderful way said, tell me about your prospective data. So surgeons don't really have prospective data either saying you should have surgery to, to clear your, your margins and clear your liver disease. But the idea is, can we get the data we need to really confidently say to our patients that this is going to be very similar, your outcome is going to be very similar without the surgical morbidity and mortality that you will have if we have to open your belly to do this? Absolutely. Yeah, I think that surgery is as old as it's been around for hundreds and hundreds of years, if not thousands. So they had the luxury of not having to go through all the rigorous trials that all the new kids on the block are having to go through. So the bar is a little bit higher for us, but I think once we prove that ablation is at least equivalent, the patients uh, already know what they want. We are already treating these patients because they understand that these therapies are less invasive and they get back to doing the things they love to do. And this is a critical trial, I think, for us to execute on. What other trials, what other research initiatives uh, are coming down the pike? Well, I think there's a big push towards, so how does immunotherapy affect our therapies or how do we affect their therapy? So can we rev up the immune system so that immunotherapy can work bigger, better, and 
hot tumors? How do we make a cold tumor hot? So how do we rev up the immune system or get infiltration of those immune cells into those tumors that are notoriously difficult to treat with immunotherapy? I think that's probably the next thing coming down the pipeline. So you think that SIO is going to focus on that, maybe come up with another trial design to try to focus on coupling immunotherapy with the things that we do, our procedures? Well, SIR and SIO held a joint RCP a couple of years ago looking at that very idea. And subsequent to that, SIO had a call, an RFA for grant proposals for immuno-oncology. So I think we've, we've been there, but do I think that's the next thing down the pipeline? Absolutely. Coupling it with ablation, coupling it with liver-directed therapy, intra-arterial therapies, absolutely. So I think we'll pivot away from research. I think we've, we've talked a little bit about that and the importance of research to SIO and its mission. Both of you have been heavily involved in the annual meetings uh, since the beginning, the formal founding of SIO. Maybe, Bill, why don't you lead off and tell us uh, your meeting was in New York City in 2014. Having actually never run a big meeting myself, I think listeners would be interested to know like what's involved. Uh, I think we all understand it's probably hard work, but you know what's involved in getting an, a meeting organized? Uh, what were the biggest challenges when you ran the meeting? Uh, and kind of what were your favorite memories? Yeah, thanks, Sean. I mean, it's very interesting to be program chair for a, a meeting like uh, SIO or, or SIR. You're serving many masters feel uh, sort of a great responsibility to try to represent the best and the most current uh, and most interesting program you can put forward to, you know, at the end of the day, we're trying to drive people to really want to come to the meeting and participate. And once they get there to have a, a very good experience and to want to come back. And so personally, I've felt a ton of pressure uh, like that, you know, putting the program together, you you don't want to do the same thing that's been done, um, you know, the years before. You want to have a new twist on things. You want to include, you know, new topics and new faculty to keep it fresh. And yet, um, you know, there's certain people that people expect to see on the podium. And so trying to balance uh, faculty and topics is interesting. You know, there is a certain rotation that we sort of have a little bit trying to make sure that we're including certain topics that are less, um, you know, like we, we have HCC sessions and colorectal sessions every meeting, but, you know, some of the more rare cancers like biliary or prostate or things like that sort of rotating on a schedule and trying to keep it fresh that way. But it's uh, it's an interesting process. I it, But at the end of the day, it's a great group of people you get to work with. Uh, the meeting committee, you have wonderful colleagues you get to become really good friends with through the process. And the SIO staff are phenomenal in helping get things together and executing on site. And it's, uh, I feel a lot of pressure, but it's very rewarding to see it all come together and then finally see people there and having, uh, having a good time and, and being interested. So I think obviously having the meeting go go well and, you know, having it start and having things not get messed up and, you know, the execution of it all is, is an obvious, you know, sort of stressor. But do you have a most fond memory of the meeting? You know, was it when it was done and you could throw up your hands and go, I'm, I'm finished? Or is there something else that really sticks out in your mind as being, you know, just a, a great memory? You know, it was, it was in New York City and it was a uh, really, really fun place to be. I remember when we had our social event, we went to the Empire State Building and uh, hadn't been up there since I was a little kid. So uh, that was pretty cool. Awesome. 
Yeah. So the the volunteerism of SIO and SIR, I have always found very striking. You know, you have a a group of people that are very busy physicians and other folks, you know, the, the staff and the volunteerism and, and the energy and time that people put into the society and to the meetings. I've just had huge admiration for that. And I, and I think it's, you know, it's a unique thing for these two small societies to have the level of engagement and the level of volunteerism. You know, that's that's not a just sort of a foregone conclusion right now in the world. Sarah, what about your meeting was in New Orleans uh, right before we all closed down in 2020? And I remember that meeting because we had the trivia night, which was so much fun. And we did a bunch of really cool things. But what was the scariest or most challenging thing about that meeting? And what's your fondest memory? Well, I can tell you the scariest <laughs> was that COVID was hitting. And so in the middle of the meeting, uh, the U.S. announced and many of the airlines announced that they were shutting down travel to Asia. And we had a whole contingent of Asian folks that didn't want to miss their talk. And so we had to try to convince them to get to the airport and get on the plane and go home because we didn't want them stuck here for we didn't know when things would open back up. So that was obviously the most challenging. Um, I obviously mirror everything that Bill said about the fun of it, the stress of it. I think probably the most challenging piece of it for me was, and looking at meetings moving forward, is who do you put up on the podium and what are they going to say? Because what you have to remember is you've got an audience of very established people. You also have an audience of, of very young people that are learning. And so you don't want to put somebody or some topic that's sort of this cowboyish, oh my gosh, once in a lifetime thing, because then they think, oh, I can do a transplantic Y90, no problem. That's, that's a very rare thing that happens in very expert hands once in a career. Not, that's not something that should be done. So really thinking about the content that you're putting up on stage so that people realize, you know, this is the safe, conservative way to do things. And then this is sort of the more extreme things that you try, you know, once in a decade, once in a lifetime. So I think that was a little bit of a struggle for me to figure out who to put up on the podium, what the message needed to be so that people got a good sense of we are data-driven people that follow research, that, you know, believe in evidence and not just you know, one-offing some cool cases. So I think that was one of the challenges. The bright spots for me, the opening session was called uh, Pioneers and New Frontiers. So we had the pioneers of interventional oncology. I had the pleasure of meeting uh, Tito Lavrahi, who came and spoke about his first ablation, his first experience doing ablation ever in the world. Dr. Yamada was going to come and then COVID hit, so he was unable to. He was the professor that performed the first chemoembolization in 1977 in his place. Dr. Arai gave his talk. So just hearing the insights from Dr. Yamada was just wonderful. Before that session, it actually started with a Wallace lecture. So SIO um, has endowed a lectureship to uh, Mike and Sid Wallace, who are very near and dear to many of us. We knew them and were friends with, with Mike, uh, or at least I was. And so it was really nice to be able to honor both of them in such a distinguished and nice way. And Gigi Silviati came and, and gave that lecture. A challenge is that his computer died on the flight over. And so we had to scramble to get him a computer that worked and access and get him up on the podium and not have a heart attack on stage because he was so stressed out about the, the meeting. The other highlights of the meetings, I think, for me would be game night. So the ability to be in a room full of really talented people and have an idea and see that idea from, you know, just inception in my mind to being up on the stage and having people compete who could, you know, put a Y90 box together faster or who could ablate with a better margin 
And to be able to see Gigi Solbiati standing side by side with Costi and doing two totally different approaches. One had two probes, one had a single probe. One, you know, totally turned the machine off and went to the surgical mode, did 100 watts. What? What is that? And the other did 65 watts. And just to see that they had beautiful ablation margins at the end. I mean, that was really, I think, quite an amazing feat to have that happen. And it was a really fun event. And the last thing I'll say, as you said, volunteerism, why is it so wonderful? You know, I got to sit in a room for years being on the annual program committee meeting and see the leadership of many of my colleagues. So Matt Kallstrom, I had the pleasure of working with. And what a wonderful way to learn how to be a leader, to watch them and, and how do they run meetings and, and how are they successful and how are others not successful? So I think that really for me and, you know, how did I build my career and, and become a leader? Sitting in those rooms and hearing those conversations and being part of the annual program committee was really helpful for me. Yeah, you just reminded me, uh, it was about over a year ago, I was working with Mike Solon and Jack Jennings and uh, Alex Kalikas and some others on a bone trial. And just to see how Mike's mind worked and all the experience he has with writing trials and learning so much, you know, just that act of volunteerism taught me and not unexpectedly, but just, you know, as, as an observation, I learned a lot about trial design just by working with this group of volunteers. And so the importance of volunteerism, what you as a person actually get out of it, even though you're giving of your time and your energy, you actually get a lot back. Uh, I think it's a really key point. And, you know, that's my plug, I think, to people listening is please get involved because you, you get to work with some amazing people and you really... You learn a lot and you get to go to wonderful places and, you know, these meetings. So the other thing that you all brought up is you've talked about a couple of international figures. And I think that that's also worth talking a little bit about is the fact that SIO is an international society. I don't know if that was intentional or organic. And Bill, I want you to kind of touch on that. How did it become such an international society, which is really a strength in my opinion? Well, you know, I think, Sean, if you're Remember, I listed off the board members when we were, were voting. I think almost half were outside U.S. at that time. And we've been very purposeful in trying to make sure we maintain international representation on the board. And it's a challenge, but it's it's very necessary. I think we, we don't want this to be an echo chamber just for U.S. physicians. You know, there's so much to learn from our colleagues all over the world. I think we tend to get at least I do, get tunnel vision and think, you know, what we're doing here is so great and we have the best of this and that. And then you go and listen to, talk to Wei Pua in Singapore about some crazy case. And he's like, well, I would do this, this, and this. And I'm like, holy, you know what? So <laughs> we are richer and better by collaborating with our colleagues around the world. And SIO is, is trying, again, very purposefully to make sure that we're being inclusive and, um, you know, we're working hard at developing our Asian chapter right now. And thanks to Wei and, and others who have been working on that. And we're excited to have that growing quickly right now. And, um, it's, it's a great community of people and we just, we want to include as many uh, people from around the world as, as possible. Absolutely. I think, I think we're allowed to say that through Wei's hard work, we have formed this uh, relationship with the Korean Society of International Radiology, the Korean Society of Image-Guided Tumor Ablation. Uh, and I think that that's only going to make us uh, a stronger organization to have those you know, relationships or memorandums of understanding. And there are other Asian societies that I know that we're 
actively pursuing, linking up with to make our membership stronger, more diverse. And I think that that's uh, really a strength and likely what will push SIO forward uh, as it sort of grows into its next stage. So again, a little bit of a pivot. We have all of these wonderful initiatives. We have these relationships that I've just mentioned, our research, the educational mission, which is something that I'm involved in. We're really focusing on trying to provide appropriate levels of education for trainees, early career physicians, mid-career and you know, late career slash experts. And I think that there's been a lot of effort by our staff to really develop that out and the education committee, which I'm certainly proud of. So I'm optimistic, but Bill, what are you optimistic about? What, where do you think we're going to go? What's the next five to 10 years uh, for SIO? That's, that's interesting, Sean. It's a, it's a great question. I think it's a really exciting time, I think, because from an industry perspective, there's a sort of a wave of new investment that's happening. I think, you know, we had the crash in 08 and 09 and all the venture capital basically left the medical device industry and it took, you know, a decade to come back. And now there's money that's flowing back and there's, there's a lot of startups and a lot of really interesting new technology. So, I mean, the way that, you know, we can grow as a uh, subspecialty as interventional oncology is to, you know, we can treat more patients in the diagnoses that we already treat, but we also need to be expanding and treating different cancers than we do well with now. And we also need new ways to treat existing problems. And so I think all those things are needed critically for us to, to expand and, and, go forward. So I'm really excited about the new investments and and some really interesting technologies coming forward. And then, you know, the second part is, as Sarah mentioned earlier, sort of the partnerships that we're developing with pharma and trying to look at ways to improve um, response rates with immunotherapy. You know, even the best immunotherapies now have response rates that are in the 20, 25% range uh, for certain, you know, for a lot of tumors. And uh, we've may and hopefully will find ways to improve that by combining local regional therapy and, and immunotherapy. And there's there's a lot of work that's ongoing. There's a lot of work that's going to be happening. But I'm super optimistic about that and about sort of we're seeing, starting to see trials that are being developed, you know, for a lot of really interesting, new, challenging cancers that we up to this point really haven't been involved in. Sarah, thoughts about the future of SIO? What are you excited about, optimistic about? Well, I can tell you I'm very excited about the pipeline of, of who's coming into our specialty. You know, with the implementation of the IR residency, the caliber of trainees that we are getting is just phenomenal. I am impressed every day by all of the trainees that are in the room with me. And you can really tell that they're very excited about the specialty and want to do right by the specialty. They want research. They're craving you know, education and research and just really ambitious and excited about what the next steps hold for them. So I'm very excited to see that we have some wonderful hands to pass the baton to when we get older and, and need to hand it back. The other thing I th I'm excited about is the new initiatives that SIL has been doing with these sort of year-round educational programs. So these, you know, Talk Tuesdays are really exciting to have ongoing educational opportunities. So if you miss the annual meeting because you had COVID or you miss the annual meeting because you had to work that weekend, 
There are ongoing opportunities for you to log in. And the beauty of that is that you can log in from anywhere in the world. So, you know, we've been able to do some remote sessions. I think I did the first hands-on session in the world where I sent them the stuff and I was, you know, emulsifying the pile together with them. And people would get up at two in the morning to have a session with me. So the outreach, I think, that we are able to achieve, given these new, you know, web-based webinar platforms or remote platforms, I think is really exciting. And I think we're never going to go back to the way we were where we just are all in person and that's the only way we learn. I think these virtual platforms and this ongoing educational model is really going to enhance our learning and be able to have further outreach. Um, So that's what I'm looking forward to. Me too. I totally agree. I think the hybrid model, whatever it becomes, uh, it really just gives us so much more power and reach, the ability to really reach the far corners of the earth and to provide education to places and to people that we haven't even dreamt of. I'm very excited about that. I'm very excited about, you know, the level of engagement of our trainees in both the SIR with RFS and in SIO. That's what gives me energy to stay engaged with these societies. How do we get more people to volunteer? So there's a lot of trainees and there's a lot of programs out there Traditionally, there have been a number of institutions that have spent a lot of time and energy on both SIR and SIO. How do we, how do we get people to volunteer for SIO? I can start, sir, and then you can. <laughs> I, you know, hopefully, I mean, a lot of it, Sean, I think is is organic, where the the people who are you know joining and coming around are passionate about interventional oncology. And so if you have a passion like that, you it's pretty easy to catch fire and grab opportunities and, and do things. I do think that all societies across the board, but especially maybe medical societies struggle with volunteer engagement and how do we make sure we maintain the link of the membership feeling like if they do volunteer that it's valued and that they're they're getting feedback and that they have opportunities to do to move up into you know leadership positions once you've served on a committee for example for a couple of years i think that's super important um you know we can't have people volunteer and then not respond to them and not um because that's you know, everybody's super busy from the person who's just coming out of their, their residency to the, someone who's been in practice for 25 years. We all have choices we have to make with our time. And we have to make sure that if the people volunteer their time for SIO, that it's a rewarding experience for them. Absolutely. Well, what I would say is, and Sean, you know this all too well, is volunteering, I think, in addition to moving the specialty forward and doing all those things, the personal gain you get from volunteering far outweighs the time that you're spent. So Sean, I say Sean knows this because Sean uh, voluntold me (laughs) into my first volunteer position, which was actually a chair position on the board for SIR. And, you know, I went in kicking and screaming, thinking, no way, there's no way I'm going to be successful at this. There's no way that I'm going to be able to do this. How am I going to manage my clinical workload with, you know, being a, a leader in SIR? And what in fact happened is I got to sit in a room with the best and the brightest and the smartest and the most talented individuals in our specialty. And, you know, that dovetailed into me being on the SIO board of directors. And boy, I mean, just to be able to sit in a room with international leaders and just see how they think and see how they lead on a personal level, you know, you gain more from that than I think you ever could at your local institution. So if you have no other reason to volunteer than a personal gain, I certainly can tell you I have had just a 
tremendous learning opportunity from all of the volunteer opportunities I've had. I would echo that. And you get to shape the future of the society. I mean, by volunteering and staying connected and engaged and getting on the committees and then chairing a committee and then being involved with the meetings, you, you shape the future of our societies and how we practice medicine. Okay, I think it's also, and that's a great point, I, it's also another way to give back. You know, I think we're extremely privileged to be able to do what we do uh, for a living every day and to be able to do these amazing um, minimally invasive procedures for patients to, to see them recover or walk out the door without a liver tumor, whatever the case may be. I think it's, it's an unbelievable privilege to be able to do that. And I think, you know, volunteering with SIR, SIO, however you choose, is a way to give back uh, and show gratitude for the privilege of what we get to do every day. Absolutely. Well, I want to thank you both for the time you spent uh, educating us on SIO and the history of SIO. I certainly have learned a lot, and I know that the listeners uh, appreciate the time. This has been uh, Backtable Podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. And as I mentioned on the top of the program, you can find all previous episodes of our podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. Thanks uh, so much, uh, Bill and Sarah, for the time. Uh, just a super discussion. Thanks, Sean. Thank you, Sean. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team lead is Kieran Gannon, with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.